Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. This morning's reading is going to come from 1 John, starting with chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. All right, thanks, Travis. Uh, Kids, before you go again, I have another surprise. We got yet another one added to the ranks. I know we only had one uh, for baby dedication this morning, uh, but we do have another kid that will soon be roaming and running the halls and trying to get coffee and uh, putting those coffee straws all over the place and all that good stuff. Graham Xavier Hahn was born this past week, November 10th on, was that Wednesday? Wednesday. Uh, Six pounds, 15 ounces. So we are excited uh, for the Hans and welcome Graham Xavier. And uh, God grows his church in various ways, and this is one way that he has seen fit to do it around here quite often. Uh, So with that, uh, kiddos, uh, you can make your way to Elevate, which is kindergarten through second grade, and the rest of you get to hang out and hear this morning. Uh, And I will, I I stopped uh, Joel from running up here with my water bottle uh, as a good Presbyterian uh, to try to um, finish the deal here. Uh, One of the reasons we do baby dedication uh, is that what we are doing in that time is we are 
we are dedicating and reminding the calling of the church. It takes a community to raise a child. Uh, it takes, I'm sorry, it takes a church to raise a child. Uh, that we are not in this alone. And one of the things we want to do, whereas we don't practice uh, pedo-baptism or infant baptism, we do practice de baby dedication, which is not the same. We don't equate those two things. Um, we say this often on baptism Sundays, but I want to bring it in today. We, we practice as a church baptism that partners with faith and repentance. Uh, and uh, there are God-honoring, God-fearing believers, churches, denominations, Presbyterians, that practice uh, infant baptism with the promise of faith and repentance. Uh, and so we make that distinguishing factor, uh, but there are many God-honoring and God-fearing men and women throughout history that have, that have disagreed on that. And we, don't, we, we practice one way, but we're a firm 51-49% on how that works. Uh, and what we say is we want to joyfully anticipate uh, faith and repentance as we are raising the children and teaching them the ways of God here. And then what we do is, what we practice is that when we see faith and repentance taking root in the hearts of uh, children uh, with parents uh, of the covenant, that, that they will then be baptized into that covenant with the evidence of faith and repentance. So if that doesn't make sense to you and you're like, well, I want to know more, uh, awesome. Um, email me or better yet, email Tracy. Get on the calendar and let's go uh, and you can take me to lunch. I'm just, I'm just pining for free lunches here lately. Um, all right. Uh, so, with all of that, this morning we're going to be in, in 1 John, and we're going to continue our sermon series so that you may know in John's letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, on November 2nd, 1950, American soldiers had made good progress in pushing the invading North Korean soldiers back from South Korea toward the north, and it seemed as though victory was certainty. When all of a sudden, over 200,000 Chinese soldiers joined in the fight, entered the war, and easily overpowered the front lines of the U.S. soldiers. In the middle of the firefight, a man by the name, uh, a chaplain by the name of Father Emil uh, Kipon went from foxhole to foxhole, comforting Wounded, wounded soldiers and praying for them. One man tells the story of having his ankle shattered by an enemy grenade, and as he got up and limped out of the trench, he saw a communist soldier running toward him, put the gun to his head, and he cowered back in fear and covered his face, and he looked up, expecting to die, he looked up seeing a man run toward him, and sure enough, it was Father Capon who pushed the uh, rifle to the side, asked if he was okay, picked up the soldier, put his arm around his, his shoulder, and walked him back to the clearing where several of the other wounded had been gathered. And this enemy soldier couldn't do anything because he was apparently just in such complete state of shock that this was happening. As the firefight worsened, Father Capon eventually negotiated a surrender. Now, he wasn't wounded. He wasn't hurt. He was encouraged to go with the retreating soldiers. In fact, many of the communist soldiers told him, get out of here and go back. And he simply ignored them and walked from wounded soldier to wounded soldier, praying for them, seeing if they were okay, encouraging ones that could walk to pick up and carry the others. As they were marched 60 miles to North Korea and put in 
uh, a prisoner camp. Um, the conditions uh, of the camp was inc were incredibly harsh. Food and clothing were scarce, but Capon gave everything he got and anything he had to comfort the wounded. He gave his food away. However slight the rations of food may be, he gave his away. He ended up giving the clothes off his own back to soldiers who were freezing. He prayed for them and he encouraged them, soldiers to trust in God's provision and to hold on. And he did this for black soldiers, white soldiers, Hispanic soldiers, Asian soldiers, Jewish, Jewish soldiers, Protestant soldiers, regardless of race, creed, or color. He gave literally whatever he had to this group of 30-plus soldiers that he was a prisoner with. After about six or seven months, uh, Capon's own condition was so bad that they came and they took him away to what they called a death house where he would eventually, just a couple days later, would die of starvation. Now, after two long years of captivity, these soldiers were freed. This group of 30 to 35 soldiers were freed. And they told these stories of Father Capon. And they, they told the story that as he left, as he was taken away from them, that he said to them, don't worry about me. I'm going to where I've always wanted to be. And when I get up there, I will pray for each of you. And then they said, according to the POWs, that he turned to the guards who were dragging him away and he made the sign of the cross to each of them and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 2013, President Obama posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor to Father Capon, making him the, only the ninth chaplain in the entire history of the U.S. military to receive such an honor. What extraordinary sacrificial, hope-filled love. A love that was demonstrated in World War II and then here again on the battlefield in Korea. A love that was fueled by a deep and abiding faith in Christ and a hope to one day be with Christ and given lavishly to anyone, even his enemies. This morning, the passage that we are that we read and that we looked at in 1 John, it has a central message that John is trying to get across, but it also has some confusing, uh, a, a bit of confusion in there. Anybody else feel a little conflicted as that was being read? Okay. All right, good. Um, and so what I want to do, what I don't want to do is to get sidetracked from the somewhat confusing part. I want that to be overwhelmed by what John is clearly saying, if not screaming, to this church uh, in Ephesus. Uh, and so we're going to, and then how to respond accordingly uh, to the love that God has given us. So we're going to address some of the confusing parts, but I want to really focus on and then eventually practice uh, the, the parts that are very, very straightforward. Um, sound good? All right, good. Overwhelming response. Uh, one thing to know about the Bible, uh, this is helpful when we're reading Scripture, is that the numbers and the chapters and the headings, all of those things, 
those are not necessarily inspired by God. We don't say that those are inerrant. Uh, those are added later on so that we could reference these letters. When the, the entire canon was put together, they began to put in divisions, which help us to know a transition from one point, one thought, to another. Now, in this passage, uh, it's hard to tell. John, John kind of switches thoughts a lot, and John also kind of, uh, he has very circular thoughts. Um, and uh, we're not sure if, if verse 28, which by the way, Paul, I apologize. I told you 18, but really good quick acting there to get to 28 quickly. Um, sometimes I come in the morning, I forget the passages I'm preaching on. Um, and, uh, but we're not sure if verse 28, uh, if, if John is finishing up his thoughts on the Antichrist that we talked about last week, or if he is beginning this new thought on abiding in Christ and this relationship between sin and the follower of Jesus. Um, and so we're not sure where that necessarily goes, and that's okay, but what, is, what he is giving here moving forward is his gentle but urgent command to the church in Ephesus to abide in him. Little children, abide in him, which is the, certain, which is the simple interpretation that we may not shrink back in shame, but we actually may anticipate and look forward to the day when we are united with Christ. And then in verse 29, he connects belief with behavior. Uh, and this can be tricky. This can be tricky. This, is you, this has been um, used in good ways to help motivate and stir one another to good works, as Paul puts it. This has also been used to condemn and shame the mess out of followers of Jesus. And I want to start, before we get into this passage, I do want to apologize to some of you. I don't know if you were raised in uh, where some of my colleagues, uh, those called pastor, who have used verses like this to shame you and to put a spiritual weight on you that you are not a Christian unless you do this, this, and this. Uh, and I want to apologize on behalf of some of my colleagues who may have put an extraordinary burden of guilt and shame on you. And I hope and pray this morning that as we walk through this and make some of these distinguishing factors and see some of these nuances, that you would be freed from those things. Um, but this can be a bit confusing. In verse 6 through 9 in chapter 3, um, it gets a little confusing. And I'll, I'll tell you, I don't know that it necessarily needs to be. What John says here basically is if you believe something, you will act in accordance to that belief. Right? If you believe the chair will hold you, then you will sit in the chair. Uh, and there are other things that we can get confused about, but really what I want to do is drill that down and learn more and more how do we practice both believing faith and abiding in God and then living that out in behavior that is accordance with what does it look like to abide in him? And then how are we becoming more like them, him in intentionally uh, doing works that are in accordance with that faith? Um, in our day, this can trip us up a little bit. At least it did when I was younger. Uh, and now there's probably an argument from the other side. Uh, and I will say we live in a post, we, we do live in a post-Christian culture where we want the kingdom without the king, uh, and that is its own issue. Uh, growing up, it was a little bit different, where um, the weight was put on uh, this, these works. Uh, when my wife was in college, 
at a small Baptist university near her hometown, she had an evangelist come in, and uh, this evangelist was preaching like a weekend revival series to college students. And what would happen is he would get students into a very vulnerable state, and then he would finish his sermons with a big altar call, uh, the goal being to get people to make decisions for Jesus. This particular evangelist set it up this way. He said this, and uh, this is obviously paraphrased, if your salvation experience does not pass these three tests, you are not a Christian. The first, if you don't remember the exact date and time. The second, if your life does not make a 180 degree turn. My wife was a child. She wasn't selling drugs and, you know, in a life of crime. That's a hard distinguishing. And then the third, we don't remember what it was. At this point, does it matter? Um, this sent my wife into a tailspin. She had known Jesus from a young age, trusted him at a young age, grew up knowing his goodness, a child who her propensity had always been to please people, which you work on that later in life, right? Um, and this just sent her into a tailspin. Now, I don't know if the technique that this evangelist used was just really bad biblical interpretation of the day, because it certainly wasn't uncommon, or if it was complete manipulation to drive up numbers. But it caused my wife a lot of spiritual hurt and pain and doubt. Did I do it right? Am, am I doing this right? Jesus, am I a child of Jesus or am I a child of the devil? If I, didn't, if I didn't get this right, am I in? Because, again, eight or nine years old, when it, Jesus says, let those come to me, because they're not all skewed by life and cynicism that you get when you grow up, what does a 180-degree turn look like? Here's the main point. John is not writing this letter to these people to get them into a spiral. He's not writing to them to get them tripped up on, are you really a Christian? Do you know that you know that you know? That's not why John is writing this letter. He's not trying to get them into doubt and fear. He is writing these things so that they may be confident, despite the false teachings that they're being pegged with, that they may be confident that the God of the universe loves them and has lavished this love on them and they should walk as children of the Most High God. He's writing this to them for quite the opposite. He's actually trying to show them how different they are from the children of the devil. He's not trying to get them to question, am I a child of the devil? Their acts have portrayed who they are. 
And the hope is not to drive the conversion numbers up. The hope is that this church would stave off the attacks of these false teachers who are continually trying to get them frustrated instead of walking in the confidence of, as a child of God. See, the God of the universe has lavished his love on you so that you might be called a child of God. And so you are. And so walk confidently in the love of the Father, doing the things that the Father has called us to do. Now, when we get to chapter 3, verse 6 and 9, uh, 6 through 9, we get into this confusing aspect of sin. What is the role of sin in the life of a follower of Jesus? And we, if you remember, we read that this morning. There's, we, re, we, we covered this a lot in the first chapter uh, of 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we make God out to be a liar. But then John in chapter 2, verse 1 says, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father. And then here we get to this confusing part. No one who abides in God can go on sinning. Anybody hear that and go, oh no. Is he talking to me? This is one of those times where I wish, and we just don't, I wish we could like do feedback and interaction. Where, where are you at? How did this strike you? How did this hit you? That we just sit down in a small group and say, what did you hear when you heard that? Um, and I don't want to be overly sidetracked by it. I don't want us to be paralyzed or hit hard in fear by this passage. But I also don't want, myself included, to simply blow it off and go, ah, move on. This ought to stop us in our tracks a little bit, but it ought not freeze us or paralyze us. Um, <clears throat> what does John want us to know about God, about salvation, about confidence, about sin, about abiding? What is his point here? And this, this honestly, this letter, this portion of the letter might be easier to interpret individually based on your response to it. If you hear this and go, oh man, am I a Christian? Okay, well, let's talk about what this is saying here. If you hear this and go, ah, John's just talking about it. And I'm like, okay, let's stop and see what this is saying. Um, what we do know is that sinning and abiding in God are in conflict, right? They don't go together like peanut butter and jelly. They are, or peanut butter and honey, which is a later in life discovery for me. Um, and then add bananas, and that is like, all right. Um, they don't get along. And we've covered some of this, and just the enemy works, and the enemy works if we try to hide, if we try to walk in darkness, if we don't confess, we're not open about it, the enemy gets in there and he works, and so we go, oh, I'm going to try harder not to sin. And if you've been a Christian very long, you know how well that works. Um, it, it doesn't. Uh, the harder you try not to sin, usually the worse it gets. Um, and so... This is, and the, our enemy, we looked at last week, is going to seize every opportunity. But this almost seems like John is going back on what he wrote earlier. That if we abide in God, we can't sin. And it's confusing because that is going to send me into a tailspin. What are you, what? <laughs> what? Now, let me give you some glorious freedom here. And I'm going to encourage you not to get up and walk out. All right? I don't know exactly what John is talking about. And it's okay. It's okay. Um, perhaps he's addressing something specific that the false teachers were giving. 
perhaps there's something that was very clear. John is older, um, and John's communication style. Paul gives caveats for everything. John talks in circles. Do you know why? Because the Bible, though inspired by God, was written by humans, testifying to a historical event that actually took place. And so we have confidence that this is the Word of God, shaped and formed by Him, but it's also written by humans. So here's what we do know. John references sin as lawlessness, and I think this might be a key to help us understanding. We're going to hit this, and then we're going to go to this practice. There is a sin which is referenced often in the New Testament. John references it early, uh, earlier in this letter. The Greek word here is hamartia. And this is more about sin that is in violation of the Mosaic law. Okay? This is kind of everyday sin. But there's another word that John uses once here, but we also see in Matthew, and we also see in Paul, lawlessness, anomia. This is the only time John uses this word. But when Matthew uses this word, and when Paul uses this word, they equate this, this word, lawlessness, with, the, uh, with um, false prophets, those who are actively opposing God. Not just a sin, but an active opposition to God. All right, does that make sense? Can we... Can, can you get that distinguishing factor between uh, sin and between anomia, which is lawlessness, an active rebellion against God, versus sin, which can be a wound, it can be a neglect, it can be intentional, but it's not like an I hate God and I'm actively against him. So we might not be able to act to specifically reconcile what John is saying in these few verses with what he has said already in chapter 1 and 2, but we, we might be able to find a foothold here of what John is saying if we can make that distinction. And I think the most helpful aspect of this, so in, any, in other words, if you are in active rebellion against God, you cannot abide in God and be in active rebellion against Him. Now, here's where I think this really like, plays out beautifully. What is the point that John is making overall in this letter? Here again, John is not trying to trip up faithful followers of Jesus. He's not trying to get them caught in their own words. He's not trying to get them to be frustrated and go like, well, wait a minute, am I, am I, am I doing this? Uh, this is something that is, can be manipulated in our day. These words, these verses have been used to scare people into the kingdom of God. But you need to know that that is not John's intent for this letter. That is not what John is trying to do. He is trying to reassure them. Your acts of righteousness, your love of God, is actually proof that you are not what, they say, what they're trying to say you are. Your acts of righteousness and your love of God is actually proof that God is lavishing his love on you. Don't get taken up by their schemes making you prove over and over and over again, but actually rest in the goodness of God. So for those who might feel afflicted by this passage, I hope this is comforting. And here again, I'd love to just sit here and talk, uh, you know, 
um, how this is hitting you and, and follow-up questions, but I hope this is comforting. Now, this doesn't mean we should ever presume salvation, that we should ever presume God's love. Again, there's no coarseness. There's always a sense of awe and wonder. Could God really love me? And we are continually to practice righteousness, to practice what God has called us to be and to do. But we are called to practice righteousness in confidence from a position as a child of God and not practice righteousness to try to earn our position as a child of God. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Um, so what does that mean? How do we practice righteousness? How do we know we're do- what we're doing is right? Does that mean that we study the Bible more, that we know more doctrine and theology, that we fulfill the checkbox of church attendance and Bible reading and the behaviors that we do and the other behaviors that we don't do? What does it mean that we're actually practicing righteousness? And can we get a report card on that? Can we find out if we're doing well on that? Um, let me tell you, first of all, those things are very important. Growing in our knowledge of God's word, growing in understanding who he is and what he has done, uh, being together in community, worshiping together, all of those things are important. Behaviors that we do and that we don't do, those are not unimportant. But have you ever noticed people that have impeccable habits, that do all of these things really well, that check all the right boxes, and they are still just incredible jerks? I mean, I'm not thinking of anybody in speci- uh, specifically, I promise you that. I'm thinking of lots of people specifically, but not any one person. Um, uh, and some of you are like, yeah, I'm watching one preach right now. Uh, I, may, I hope not. Um, but have, have you noticed that? Um, how do we know how to mark progress in the Christian life? I heard one spiritual director put it this way the other day, actually. He said, it's hard to have marks of spiritual maturity in the Christian life in which the legalists don't win every time. Isn't that good? I was like, yeah. How do we practice righteousness that it would actually set us apart even from the legalists? Well, we're going to get more into this next week, but it's where John finishes his thoughts for this week. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. What is the ultimate spiritual marker of maturity? I'm convinced and convicted that it is love. It is love. We're going to get into better definitions of what love means next week. That is not self-consumption for my own pleasure, which is what we usually refer to love in our day. Uh, and so we'll, we'll look at that more next week, but has your abiding and your practicing righteousness, has it produced in you a measure of love? Do you love God and others more than you, than you have in the past? Is it producing in you, in some ways even nagging you, with a greater, more sacrificial, more hope-filled love? Um, I'm fully convinced that this is the spiritual marker, so how do we get there? We slow down and we abide. 
So what we're going to do this morning to finish is we're going to do a practice. And we're gonna, I'm, I'm going to speed it up just a little bit, but uh, we've done this together. It's called a prayer of examine. We've done this before. This is an ancient practice. It's been around for a very long time. Uh, this is not a mystical anything. We're not going to light incense or do anything like that. Uh, and I will tell you that in January, we're going to do a class uh, in mid to late January that you've seen on spiritual habits and forming these type of spiritual habits. And here again, the goal is not to accomplish a habit, right? It's not to go through and do P90X and then on day 91, you put all the weight back on because you've accomplished the habit. The goal in any spiritual habit is to know and trust Jesus more, to be shaped more like him and to love in the way that he has loved. So this morning we're going to do this together. Um, and what this is going to do is simply slowing down and seeing where and how we have enjoyed and embraced the Father's presence in our daily activities, in our life, uh, and also acknowledging and confessing and receiving forgiveness for where we have forfeited God's presence or missed God's presence or simply ignored it. So um, I don't know about you, but I have days where I actually... Uh, I go through the day and I do the task list and I get things done and then I look back and I'm like, what did I even do today? What even happened? Time tends to be bleeding together more and more. You accomplish one thing and then you take time and play a video game and your mind just keeps going and then you're like, oh, I got to do this. And presence seems to be such a hard thing to grasp. Um, so this is a practice to help us abide to, ex to see and experience and be aware of the presence of God in our day. Uh, so I'm going to have uh, Eric come on up, and um, he's going to play some background music for us. Uh, what I'm going to ask you to do is to get comfortable, not too comfortable, so try to stay awake, um, but to sit in a comfortable position. Uh, and I'll tell you now, if kids get restless, uh, if they get fussy, uh, if you have small kids and they're getting fussy, um, I'll tell you right now, it's okay, all right? We live in a chaotic world, even in our times of quiet. We have enough chaos that we know how to do this. Uh, now, if you want to go out to the, uh, if you want to go out to the lobby, you're, you're welcome to do that. If if a kid is getting fussy or whatever, um, or if if you're fearful that your kids are going to get fussy and you're in here uh, and you're like, I'd really want to be here, and you want to just ask somebody around you, and you can raise your hand and say, Is this guy trustworthy? Could he take my kid out to the lobby? Um, a neighbor, friend, whatever. Uh, if you want to do that, that's totally cool as well. But what I want you to do uh, is to get into a posture, take, get, sit uh, straight up, good posture, and uh, go ahead and, and close your eyes, and I want you to start by taking in a deep breath. And listen, this is a gift from God. Whenever you face a stressful situation or decision and you take a deep breath in, have you ever noticed how it kind of resets you a little bit? This is a gift from God. He even designed our bodies to work this way. Take a deep breath. Close your eyes. Ask God to make his presence known. We're going to take a minute just in that mode right there. Keep breathing and ask God to make you aware that he is here.
now I want you to go over the last couple of days, maybe even the last week, and ask God to reveal to you the gifts that he has given you in the last week. Big things and small things. Job, relationships, security, even small things, a good night's sleep, a running car, a smile from a friend this morning. Go back through those and thank God for each one of those gifts. As you're doing that, pray that God would direct your thoughts, that you would not obsess over small details, how good or bad you've done it, or or your days. Don't let the to-do list get wrapped up. Ask God to direct your thoughts. Continue thanking Him for the big and small. I want you to go back to yesterday or or even Friday. Kind of take an hour-by-hour approach to your day. Each person, each opportunity that you encountered. Let some of the insignificant moments pass by, but some of the bigger moments that took place. And as you do that, continue to recall God's gifts throughout the day and thank God for them. And in some of the bigger moments, a pause for just a minute. Did I see or experience or appreciate God's presence in that moment? Did I act as if God was real and that he had lavished his love on me in that moment? whether it was a good moment or a challenging moment. Did I tangibly see God's presence and experience it? And then also as you're going through those, were there moments or encounters where I was not the person that God had called me to be? Either internally or externally. Did I not enjoy or appreciate God's presence in those encounters?
in those moments, as you continue to walk through the day, I want you to see that God's desire is to forgive you. And would you ask him to do that in those moments? And that you would see the joy on his face that you would come to him and trust him for forgiveness and feel his grace and mercy wash over you. No shame just delighting that his child has come to him. So continue to walk through that hour by hour over the last couple of days. now I want you to consider the day upcoming either this afternoon or tomorrow and ask God to show you in concrete ways how you can walk in his presence tomorrow how can you respond differently in those moments in those encounters ask God to show you what kind of person he is calling you to be tomorrow not for the rest of your life just tomorrow the resolution to be that person called and empowered by God and ask him for help.
take just a moment. Is there anything else you would like to make known to God in this time? My hope and my prayer is that we would, as a church, as a people, abide in him. My hope is for me that we would abide in him and that this would change us and transform us. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.